Welcome to this installment of Context Clues, where we gather segments from previous episodes to give you deeper insight into our upcoming topic, our Halloween special called The 12-Foot Skeleton. In the terrifying year of 2020, Hardware Empire, Home Depot, Home Grew Us, an October decoration that seemed to spring from the collective American subconscious, a giant posable skeleton whose sheeny skull reached above the first story of many suburban homes. This wasn't just another hokey Halloween animatron, like the ones we find yearly at pop-up spirit Halloween stores. No, this was a sensation, a craze on par with the all-out brawls for Beanie Babies or Tickle Me Elmos, the 12-foot skeleton selling out each year within hours of being posted online, which limited the parking lot fistfights. Lovers of Skelly, as the skeleton has come to be known, have even created a black market, reselling the monster at triple the price. In many communities, these skellies stay up all year round, dressed for various holidays far beyond Halloween, leading us at American Hysteria to wonder Is there something deeper going on here? Plaster and plastic and cardboard skeletons have been a staple of the holiday for decades, long before our giant patron saint of Halloween actually arrived. But as we'll learn in our upcoming episode, the history of skeleton displays in America is as dark as it is amusing. In fact, You may want to do a double take on the skeletons you think you know, because if history is any indication, these collections of bones may be far more real than you ever expected. Not only will we explore the history of these decorations, but we'll also take a gruesome look at the real specimens that came before and learn about the strange secret rituals that once centered around them. We'll also travel way back to the Middle Ages to explore the skeletal art that bloomed out of troubled times, times that have something important in common with the world we know today. And then we'll confront the psychic need we seem to have developed, the need to laugh at a plastic form of death. These skeletons, both the giant and the modest, found sprawled across October lawns, developed alongside another Halloween institution, the omnipresent phenomenon of the haunted attraction. Consistently featuring these beloved bones posed in various creative scenes, haunted attractions most often grace rural farms and repurposed city factories to create walk-through frights using real human actors as well as animatronics. In fact, they are so vital to the holiday that one can actually trace the changing rituals of Halloween in America by following the development of these delightful little DIY houses of horror. It was at a conference for haunted house decor that the idea for the 12-foot skeleton first struck the holiday team at Home Depot, inspiring one of the defining archetypes of our generation. So here you go, a section from our episode called Haunted Attractions. 
Halloween as we know it is a mashup of the Celtic Samhain and the Catholics All Saints Day. But the autumn time has always inspired universal themes of coming darkness and death. Departed spirits may be said to return. The veil between the living and the dead lifted. A time when demons can more easily steal souls or souls more easily might be able to reach through to the living. When Halloween was introduced into America, as you might guess, the Puritans sent it straight back to hell, but by the mid-1800s, things started to look a little more familiar. Halloween started to take its modern form. As scores of immigrants from Ireland and Scotland entered the New World, the boys and young men brought with them a veritable treasure chest of Halloween pranks. The local American white boys were all too happy to join in, learning such classics as pulling up a turnip stalk, lighting it on fire to get it smoking, and then jamming it in the keyhole of a house to get it smelling just terrible in there. And boys will be boys, so the pranks kept cranking up, each year worse than the last. Roving packs of delinquents would string ropes across sidewalks to trip pedestrians, coat chapel seats with molasses, tie doorknobs of opposing houses together, knock over everything they could find, including occupied outhouses, lead livestock onto barn roofs and just tear up a bunch of crops, smear paint all over houses, explode pipe bombs, and in their most jackassian move, leave dummies on train tracks to scare conductors. By the early 1900s, these quaint rural pranks went into hyperdrive in crowded cities. Fire alarms were pulled, bricks were thrown through windows, curse words painted on houses, small fires were set that sometimes turned into big fires, and if you were dumb enough to be out on Halloween night, you could be jumped for treats. In Maryland in 1939, a little girl almost had to have her entire arm amputated because a boy hit her with a rock. In 1932, a man almost lost his eye when a teenager blasted him in the face with a rock. In 1929, an unhinged group of boys planted and then detonated dynamite on their high school campus. Several people were even killed by pranks that involved hiding dangerous objects on roadways. All of this malarkey was costing actual American lives and millions of American dollars in the middle of a Great Depression. Eventually, the adults had had enough, arming themselves with rifles, threatening death at the teenagers, and even firing shots at some of the rowdiest groups. From what it sounds like, it was basically the early 20th century version of The Purge, but real. And like The Purge, the mischief had been tolerated for that one night exclusively, with that boys-will-be-boys attitude. Uh, just let them get it out of their system. But by 1942, as America entered the Second World War, the adults of this uncertain nation just could not tolerate this shit anymore. A Rochester, New York superintendent put it this way in a letter to the editor. Letting the air out of tires isn't fun. It's sabotage. Soaping windows isn't fun this year. Your government needs soaps and greases for the war. Even ringing doorbells has lost its appeal because it may mean disturbing the sleep of a tired war worker who needs his rest. The adults didn't care that Halloween was about more than these dumbass pranks from a bunch of dumbass boys. But it didn't matter. The war on Halloween had begun. The Chicago City Council voted to ban the holiday outright and replace it with Conservation Day. 
But thankfully for the youth and for the generations to come, the mayor never followed through with the plan. By 1950, President Truman again addressed the issue, expressing his hope to turn Halloween into Youth Honor Day, an event with the goal of instilling moral virtue in teenagers. But soon after, the Korean War eclipsed the Halloween controversy on the House of Representatives' list of important issues, and they tossed the motion aside. But as they do, local communities of suburban parents started to go totally rogue, towns across the nation seizing on the template for Truman's saccharine suckfest, Youth Honor Day. The Ocala, Florida chapter of the Moose Lodge threw a big old youth honor party complete with a crown-clad king and queen of youth honor and a parade to honor their honor. I'm sure some of the buttoned-up squares felt relief in the bland brown halls of the Elks Lodge, but many other teenagers were not about to trade their devilish night of freedom for this. The parents, administrators, and local politicians all knew that Youth Honor Day just wasn't working. But they also felt like they were onto something here. Yes, a distraction. Hmm. Yes, a way to convince the kids that they're doing something exciting, something, hmm, transgressive, while still keeping them off the streets. Because banning Halloween, that would just make it more attractive. No, no, no. Give them what they want without giving them what they want. And so, with that scheme in mind, neighborhoods began decorating their basements in different spooky themes, every house on the block, and so kids and teens could haunted house hop their way to a bag full of treats, no tricks necessary. An instructional party pamphlet taught adults how to create a frightening but cheap haunted living room. Hang old fur, strips of raw liver on walls, where one feels his way to dark steps. Weird moans and howls come from dark corners, and damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling and touch his face. A guard dressed as a dog suddenly jumps out at him, barking and growling. Slowly, the popularity of pranks did begin to die out, replaced by a much tamer and far more parent-sanctioned evening with far less property damage. But Halloween cannot be contained by those unenchanted by its spirit. And so, the haunted house attraction took on a life of its own. Welcome, foolish mortals, to the Haunted Mansion. In 1969, Walt Disney would open his famous, fantastic, and squeaky clean Haunted Mansion in Disneyland, modeled after the far more punk rock dark rides that had been a staple of carnivals since the 1800s. These type of amusements take place in indoor environments and use guided vehicles to move people through different scenes. Tens of thousands of people would pass through Disney's Haunted Mansion, which would inspire a massive DIY movement across the nation. Conventional houses, warehouses, basements, factories, schools, churches, new construction, virtually every kind of facility which might lend itself to the J.C. Haunted House project. The original royalty of the Haunted House attraction scene was, perhaps surprisingly, the very exciting-sounding group, the United States Junior Chamber, or the J.C.'s, a nonprofit personal development business leadership club that also does community service, and, side note, unexplainably boasts a roster of impressive and controversial former and present members. Bill Clinton, Elvis Presley, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Howard Hughes, Charles Lindbergh, Al Gore, 
Bill Gates, Larry Bird, oh, and also serial killers John Wayne Gacy and Edmund Kemper. Well, that's really weird, but I don't know what else to say about it, so let's move on. <laughs> Throughout the 1960s and 70s, the JCs turned out to be pretty cool indeed, creating the original charity haunted houses that popped up all over the country, using whatever locations they could find, abandoned buildings and parks and fields, transforming them, creating original sets and using their own special effects with makeup and costuming to transform their volunteers into monsters and ghouls. Without the moving vehicles of the dark rides, patrons just walk themselves through these living, breathing horror dioramas. These haunts became so in demand that the president of the Bloomington chapter named Tom Hillegoss wrote a guidebook, a blueprint for other JC chapters to follow, how to recruit teenage actors, how to set and reset a scene, how to use darkness as a tool when you're on a tight budget. Across the country he went, as one central Illinois newspaper put it, quote, A Johnny Appleseed gone bad. Tom Hillegoss hopes to spread terror across the land. Truly, if J.C.'s continue to become involved ever more professionally in this haunted house project, there will be a day very soon that J.C.'s will own Halloween. I could have gone to a place called Blood Manor. In the early 1970s, it became an infamous haunt created by a 24-year-old school teacher and former theater kid from Maryland named Itsy Atkins. He was turned off by the sugary tameness of Disney's Haunted Mansion, and the JC charity events just weren't living up to his ghoulish standards. In the early stages of Blood Manor's creation, Itsy Atkins knew that location mattered for two reasons, keeping the cost low and adding an extra mystique, some theatrical lore. When he found the right place, he knew, an abandoned nunnery in the small rural town of Ridge, Maryland. It was crumbling, dark, dank, and likely a little dangerous, but it was the 70s, so that was fine. He rented the covenant from a local Catholic church and got right to work. Teaming up with another creative named Skip Smith, who had just created a haunted house in the local college basement, the two men set out to make Halloween history. And they got their funding after striking an agreement with the county. They would sponsor Blood Manor in return for the proceeds going to the Parks Department. Great. But something was going to be different about Blood Manor. Instead of participants moving through scenes, Itsy Atkins wanted to make the experience more interactive, to make the guests a part of the show. At Blood Manor, you could be chased and you could be touched. It was an immediate success. Thousands flooded to test their courage in the face of unprecedented theatrical gore, with scenes that included an operating room where blood-covered surgeons were amputating a man's legs. A British tabloid would dub the haunt the sickest show in America. I mean, the sickest show in America. And guess what? According to Itsy Atkins, it was Blood Manor that even gave us the most potently haunting haunted house tool of all, the gas-powered chainsaw, from which he simply removed the chain. Then they put fake blood into the oil tank that would spray out when the chainsaw was running, quote, you could scrape that across somebody's arm and they would think it was going into bone. The chainsaw always cleared them out. And it's true. It always clears me out. 
Suffice to say, the sleepy town did not like Blood Manor. They hated it, in fact, and tried multiple times to get it shut down, while newspapers ran indignant editorials that just sent more wayward youth to this new mecca of transgression. Blood Manor would run for almost a decade, with great success, popping up in different creepy locations every year. Urban legends about the manor abounded, too, with people recalling tales of teenagers hanged inside the haunt about a fire that trapped a group of teenagers inside. But that last urban legend would soon prove prophetic, though Blood Manor and its fans would be spared. Because the civic-minded 70s turned into the business-hungry 80s, the charity haunt scene now had its competitors, entrepreneurs catching the scent of all that fake blood money. Following in the footsteps of Disney and the anti-up by Blood Manor, other theme parks like Knott's Berry Farm, or Knott's Scary Farm, and Six Flags began installing their own haunted houses with those major studio budgets, which meant they could hire professional actors and build elaborate sets with electronic effects and Hollywood-style makeup and costuming. The true nail in the coffin of the charity scarehouse heyday would come in the form of that fire on the night of May 11, 1984, when the haunted castle at a New Jersey Six Flags Adventure Park caught fire with 29 people inside. To this day, it's unclear what started the fire, with Six Flags avoiding culpability by claiming in court that it was arson, the victims arguing that the park had not followed legal safety protocol. Citizens across the state and nation were outraged, horrified, with everyone agreeing that something had to be done. Won't somebody think of the teenagers? Lawmakers acted fast, enacting far stricter safety laws and building codes for commercial and charity haunts alike, which meant more expensive materials and location rentals. By and large, the nonprofit world just couldn't hack all the new regulations and potential fines and increased insurance. They were drowning in a sea of bureaucracy, and across the country, charity haunts began closing in huge numbers. More after this. The rumors are true. I do enjoy a feel-good meal. I can slip into the microwave and watch it spin, especially when that meal is personalized and delivered right to my door. With Factor, there are a whopping 35 different pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals of all kinds with the welcome addition of over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons. We're talking two-minute restaurant quality meals, as well as smoothies and snacks, and so much more to enjoy at home or on the go. Baby, we've done the math. Factor's fast, upscale, ready-to-eat meals are less expensive than takeout and a whole lot faster when you are hungry right now. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule your deliveries anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. That's code Code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. If you're like me, you've been shopping in the boys section for too long, and let's just say there is a limit to the quality you will find there. But just imagine upgrading your wardrobe with actual luxury essentials at unbeatable prices, like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I ordered my partner an oversized cable cardigan, and I got a Milano-stitched oversized shirt jacket. But then they were so cute and honestly nicer than anything I own, so now we are swapping them whenever I say so. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com hysteria for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash hysteria to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash hysteria. And now, back to the show. In order to understand America's relationship to skeletons, both real and fake, it helps to understand our changing relationship to death itself. Long before you and I were even a twinkle in our parents' eyes, there was an intimacy with death that we can barely imagine, when the process of dying and the process of processing our dead loved ones happened at home where everyone played a part. But slowly, over the centuries, death became more and more distant, as did the bodies of those who had succumbed to the inevitable, then placed in funeral homes where burial became an extremely lucrative industry. Not only that, but as medical science became more and more central to American life, bodies took on new meaning, and they began to be used in ways that many typical American citizens found downright criminal. Students were in need of dead human bodies for dissection and education, and they used many different avenues to find the specimens they needed. This affected the history of skeletons in America in a way that would lead directly to the 12-foot skeleton craze as we know it, and next week, we will explain to you exactly how. In the meantime, check out this section from our episode called Death. There is a sprawling cemetery outside of Los Angeles that has long been called the Disneyland of Death, or as the LA Times referred to it, a theme park necropolis. The Forest Lawn Memorial Park is an enormous, saccharine-sweet playground of mortality, or rather, immortality. An illustrious resting place for some of the most famous people in American pop cultural history and anyone else who can afford it. In 1917, a dreamer with a streak of capitalistic Christian mysticism named Hubert Eaton gained control of a small, rundown cemetery in Glendale, California, and decided that dying itself needed a cute new makeover. He rechristened it a memorial park, believing that cemeteries were, quote, unsightly, depressing stone yards, and sought to make a new kind of mourning place, or rather a place as unlike other cemeteries as sunshine is unlike darkness. Hubert Eaton was not fond of tombstones, the way they would crack and slouch grayly over, the words fading away over time. In the new forest lawn, tombstones would be replaced by flat markers, far more impervious to the elements, and a little classier, too. The grounds would become adorned with dramatic replicas of famous artworks, including a full-sized statue of Michelangelo's David and an enormous stained glass rendering of The Last Supper. 
He called these accents his silent salesmen, and soon he would open a museum, curating some of the most famous art in existence. He also added other attractions, such as the Pool of Reflection, as well as building several wedding chapels that were exact replicas of European churches, and boasting big ceremonies there, including that of American hysteria favorite Ronald Reagan. Elizabeth Taylor, Sammy Davis Jr., Michael Jackson, Clark Gable, Nat King Cole, the patron saint of my entire heart, Brittany Murphy, Carrie Fisher, and the man himself, Walt Disney, are all buried at Forest Lawn. To keep the grounds perfect, mourners are not allowed to leave balloons, ornamentation, statues, or stones, and potted flowers must not exceed eight inches in diameter with cut flowers removed within three days. To give you a more visceral picture of this strange, deathless cemetery, the very first statue installed in Forest Lawn was that of a naked toddler surrounded by ducklings, titled, fittingly, Duck Baby. The vast 300 acres were divided in an eerily similar way to Disneyland. There's Babyland, made for infants and shaped like a big heart, Slumberland, for children and teenagers, the Garden of the Mystery of Life, Sweet Memories, Inspiration Slope, Graceland, Garden of Honor, Kindly Light, Gardens of Contemplation, and the Dawn of Tomorrow. Eden also wanted to soften the language around death to make it more pleasant. He created popular euphemisms that we still use today, calling a corpse the loved one and death itself leave-taking or passing on. Even now, hearses are called casket coaches, graves are called internment spaces, and dirt is referred to as earth. Some accounts say you can even choose music to be eternally pumped into the crypts, even when no visitors are present. But Forest Lawn was more than an easier place to come to terms with mortality and to say goodbye. It was also a very profitable business model. Depending on the area, burial costs are currently going anywhere from $8,000 to $800,000. Loudspeakers across the lawns break the calm music to remind visitors of the various on-site florists and gift shops. When he was still around, Eaton required the staff to call him the Builder and reminded them every morning after a session of prayer that they were selling immortality. The Builder's Creed is carved into a large stone tablet near the entrance. It begins, I believe in a happy eternal life. Flanked by alabaster sculptures of children holding hands and, of course, a puppy curled beside them. He paid an Italian artist to sculpt a Jesus statue with the explicit request that it have an American face and be filled with radiance and looking upward with an inner light of joy. But of course, for much of the beginning of its history, this cemetery did not allow any people of color to be buried in an all-white, suburban-esque, pastoral fantasy. Beginning in the 1600s, most Puritan graves were adorned with a winged skull. And yes, I know, this is extremely badass. They were otherwise simple, austere, a rejection of the English Catholic pomp and circumstance. And they were common, too, because the colonists were no strangers to intimate death. It was a basic and highly visible fact of their lives. The death rate was incredibly high during their first century, and even by the time the settlements were more established, one in ten children would die in their first year of life, and up to 40% would not reach adulthood. Most would die in their homes with their families, their bodies then washed and shrouded for a wake, kept from decomposition with vinegar-soaked cloths and tubs of ice. 
Facing death was twofold for the Puritans, something to be excited for at the potential of heaven and the confirmation of their goodness, what was known as the assurance of salvation. But since these are the Puritans we're talking about, after that sweet moment of assurance, it was straight into something called necessary doubt, lest one be lulled by vanity, what they called false peace. Throughout the following period, known as the Era of Enlightenment, science slowly began to take its place alongside the religious superstitions of the past, and bodies took on a new significance. Doctors wanted to understand how the body worked in order to figure out how Americans could live longer, how the dead could help the living. But this was not always a noble pursuit in the eyes of those outside the medical field. With the advent of public hospitals, medical students sought out the deceased to be used as experimental cadavers. Medical students became well-known for their nightly tradition of grave robbing, which almost always meant exhuming the bodies of the enslaved, which they did without much public notice or care. But when this indignity extended to one white woman in New York City in 1788, the locals went absolutely nuts. It begins like this, or so the story goes. A group of children were playing outside a hospital wherein a medical student was dissecting a human arm. Annoyed by their chattering, the student grabbed the arm, hung out the window, and in a perfect horror movie scene, waved it at the children, telling a specific boy that it was in fact the arm of his own mother who had died recently. The kids took off in terror, and the boy immediately told his father what the student had said. When his father indeed found his wife's grave empty, he gathered a group of townspeople who shared his outrage and swapped stories about other gruesome and disrespectful experiments happening at the hospital, and eventually 2,000 people would gather and riot, breaking into the building and finding the macabre rumors to be true. They pulled several students out by the arms and forced them into the crowd until the mayor had them taken to jail and the rioters threw rocks at the militias called in for crowd control. Up to 20 people would be killed and the laws would then be reformed about just who could be exhumed. However, the petitions of the enslaved were largely ignored and the process of medical testing on exhumed black bodies in some states lasted into the early 20s. 20th century. I've been struck by a piece of shell and my right shoulder is horribly mangled. I know death is near, that I will die far from home and friends of my early youth. I pray my God to forgive my sins and feel that his promises are true, that he will forgive and save me. The Civil War would be perhaps the greatest influence on our modern dealings with the dead, with the national shock of nearly 700,000 bodies, as compared to less than 7,000 in the Revolutionary War. Battlefields were covered with the dead, and medics and soldiers were completely unable to keep up with identifying and burying the bodies in an honorable way. In just one day, during the Battle of Antietam, for example, 23,000 men would perish, their bodies lying out in the open for days. During the Battle of Vicksburg, the two sides called for a temporary truce because of the stench of decomposing bodies. They lacked important supplies like carts and shovels, and it's believed that in this particular battle, the dead were almost completely unburied after a week of working, leading to a frustrated acceptance of using mass and unidentified graves. The soldiers of the Civil War wore no dog tags, no identification, and there was no database of those who were fighting. And so families would sometimes have to wander the battlefields themselves, usually to no avail, trying to find the bodies of their loved one, hoping to fill what was called the dread void of uncertainty. At least half of those who died in the war were never identified. 
By the mid-1800s, life expectancy was rising, and so death was becoming more distant, and those who survived into adulthood were expected to live into middle age. But the Civil War changed the psyche of Americans at large and was often called the harvest of death. Suddenly, this gathering around for final moments, these whispered last words and goodbyes, the comfort of a heavenly ascent that marked their good death, was no longer an option for those who died on the battlefield and their families. Would they get to heaven or not? What would become of their bodies, and thus, what would become of their souls? The trains that carried fallen soldiers home in the scorching southern heat required heavy iron coffins to avoid the smell of decomposition, which most families couldn't afford. And so, scientists and doctors searched for a solution, and they found it in the unorthodox practice called embalming. Undertaking before the Civil War was largely a city affair, focused on building and selling coffins, renting out hearses and funeral carriages, and selling mourning clothes and jewelry. But as the need arose, men took up embalming for cash and followed skirmishes of the Confederate and Union armies, embalming directly on the battlefield and competing fiercely with one another, often burning down each other's tents. Propping up unclaimed bodies they had preserved outside their facilities to mark their prowess, these predecessors of ambulance chasers also advertised their services with phrases like, bodies embalmed by us never turn black. A discount option from the $100 cost was to eviscerate internal organs and fill the body with sawdust, despite this being considered a sin by both the Protestant and Catholic traditions. Beyond the soldiers themselves, it would be the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and his embalmed body's subsequent tour that would bring this new post-mortem sensation into popular consciousness. People in the town would be singing hymns and, and, and chanting prayers, and as that faded away into the distance in the dark, you could then hear the next town, the next village, of people doing the very same thing. Millions would see and mourn the body of Lincoln as the procession made the long trip from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois, with the former president preserved by a man known as the father of American embalming, Thomas Holmes. People were amazed to see this man they so revered one more time in person, well, sort of. But the 20-day trip proved too much for the corpse, and the New York Times reported that, quote, Dark as was the face before, and unearthly, it was at 11 o'clock Monday night nearly five shades darker. The dust had gathered upon the features, the lower jaw somewhat dropped, the lips slightly parted, and the teeth visible. It was not a pleasant sight. Regardless, so much of the country had seen this man that they so loved, and it seemed that death no longer belonged exclusively to families and small communities. It belonged to the people, spread far and wide through newspapers and the new technology of photography, with gruesome photographs of battlefield corpses only reinforcing the desire to make the realities of death, well, less real. More after this. And now, back to the show. Intimately connected to the haunted attraction and the unreality of death is, of course, the horror movie, a genre that has frightened and delighted since the earliest days of moving pictures. In fact, the very first 12-foot skeleton was an invention of horror producer and gimmick king William Castle, who reigned supreme throughout the post-war years as teenagers and young adults 
flocked to the theaters not only to watch his campy B-horror and sci-fi movies, but also to experience the 1950s version of 4D. Only briefly mentioned in this upcoming section, the Emerjo system was a huge draw when House on Haunted Hill premiered in 1959, promising that the skeleton villain of the movie would actually leave the screen and fly out over the audience who laughed and screamed at this cheesy blow-up skeleton, with kids even trying to shoot it down with BB guns, or so William Castle told the press. As a man of gimmicks, it was always hard to tell exactly what was true and what was false. So now let's hear more about this abominable showman, the first inventor of the 12-foot skeleton, and his campy shtick that no doubt contributed to Skelly's future. Now here it is, a section from our episode called Horror Movies Part 1. Studies have shown that there's a correlation between those who are more prone to anxiety and those who are most drawn to horror movies. Our overly anxious little research and writing team have each lived our lives obsessed with horror, in need of horror, and we do believe what the abominable showman William Castle said all the way back in the 1950s. A scream at the right time may save your life. The first time my newest hero, the little orphaned William Castle, knew what he wanted to do with his life, he was 13 years old, watching Bella Lugosi play Dracula in a mid-1920s New York production. As he later wrote in his autobiography, I knew then what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to scare the pants off audiences. He would drop out of high school after charming his way into meeting Bela Lugosi, who got him a job with a touring theater show. By the time he was in his late 20s, he was directing crime dramas, but by the time he was in his 40s, he found his truest calling, low-budget B-movies, and like a goth Walt Disney, he made them come alive. The master of gimmicks, or the abominable showman, as he was sometimes called, pumped out campy movies at a prolific rate about everything from killer cockroaches to haunted houses to an axe-murdering Joan Crawford. Often compared to P.T. Barnum, many of his films were accompanied by a kind of live action that incorporated the audience. The dreamy, creepy Vincent Price was a consistent collaborator with William Castle, starring in the 1959 smash The Tingler, a story about a parasite that lives in every person, attached to their spine, feeding on their fear. The spine is crushed slowly when the host is afraid, and only when they scream, only when they unleash their fear, does the tingler weaken. But now, here's the gimmick. Using what he called Percepto, William Castle ingeniously attached buzzers underneath some of the seats in the theater, using old surplus de-icing airplane motors from World War II, spending an enormous chunk of his small budget for the movie to attain them. At the climax of the movie, the screen would suddenly go black, the lights would go off into pitch darkness, cueing the projectionist to activate the buzzers, which would cause patrons to jump and cry out, while chilling screams shot out from the speakers. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream! 
Scream for your lives. The tingler is loose in this theater. And if you don't scream, it may kill you. Scream. Look out, it's under the seat. Ladies and gentlemen, the tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of the movie. He planted in the audience fake screamers and fainters, with one woman carried out on a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance, passing the real nurses that were there in case of emergency. The film would then return with an assurance from Castle that the woman would indeed be all right and that the tingler threat was neutralized. Castle would take out actual $1,000 life insurance policies on both any audience member who died from fright and also on the life of his leading man in Bug, Hercules the Cockroach. He created Illusiono with a foil-tinted ghost viewer that you could look through to see ghosts that were not otherwise visible without it. As the years went on, Castle would continue to cultivate this eccentric persona, arriving at premieres in a hearse, rising out of an actual coffin. Paired with his film, House on Haunted Hill, was a big black box beside the movie screen, which, at the climax of the film, would pop open to reveal a cheesy 12-foot prop skeleton with flashing red eyes that would then soar over the audience using a wire. Kids returning for the second time, knowing the gimmick, would throw their popcorn and candy and soda fountain cups at the skeleton, trying to knock it down. People were having fun while being scared, and it seems like from the plot of The Tingler that William Castle knew how powerful it could be to choose horror, to control the fear by finding a way to let it out. Because how else? Were we going to make it through this life? Thank you so much for listening to this installment of Context Clues. And please make sure you come back next week for our Halloween special called The 12-Foot Skeleton. This was American Hysteria. If you'd like to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content, including our other show, Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I tell you stories from the cutting room floor of each topic. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria, or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And another big, giant, huge way you can help our show out is to leave us a five-star review on the app of your choosing. You can also leave us a message on our Urban Legends hotline at AmericanHysteria.com, where you tell us an urban legend that you heard growing up. And if it sparks joy within us, we'll do a full investigation and present to you all our findings. That's the Urban Legends hotline at AmericanHysteria.com. This episode was produced by Riley Swidelius Smith. And as always, I'm your host, Chelsea Weber Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great week.